Uh, now we'll go ahead and get into the scripture reading for today. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to be reading the entire chapter. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. It starts, In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers in all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Afterward, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah, why haven't you just, or haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master servants, but did not go home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, when you finished, telling the king all the details of the battle. If the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize they would shoot from the top of the wall? At Thebes, who struck Ambalek, son of... Aaron, I don't know how to say this one. <laughs> Truthfully. Jerubasheth. There we go. Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger reported to David, the men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, the archers shot down on your servants from the top of the wall, and some of the king's servants all uh, died. Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is also dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this master, don't let this matter upset you, because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. 
When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Well, good effort, Jacob. (laughs) You had one job. No, good job, though. There's some challenging challenging words here and there in the Old Testament, so uh, so I'm proud of all you guys who always give it your best effort. Just know I'm, I'm usually just giving my best effort, too, so <laughs> just got to stumble your way throughout it. So anyway, good to see you guys this morning. Welcome to Redeemer City Church. It's good to see you all uh, as, you know, everyone's kind of all making their way back from summer. You know, even me uh, coming back from my sabbatical this summer. It is great to see you guys, and uh, just a pleasure to be able to worship with you again, and fellowship with you again, and uh, and, and so on. So, yeah, we are looking today at Second um, Samuel 11 as we continue in this series on the life of David. There's two stories that are the most well-known in David's life, uh, some of the most well-known in the Bible. For, certainly the first story, which will be the story of David and Goliath, whenever David was just a shepherd boy and he went to the front lines where the Israelites and the Philistines were in battle, and he defeated the champion of the uh, Philistines, Goliath. One of the most well-known stories, not just in David's life, but in all of Scripture, a wonderful story. It's the height, we could say, maybe, of David's victories. But then the second most well-known story in David's life would certainly be the story between David and Bathsheba, this one that we read about here. In contrast, whereas David and Goliath that story was one of a great victory in David's life. This is certainly one that marks maybe his lowest defeat. It's a tragic story. You know, I, I dreaded uh, preparing this message all this week, and, and even this morning, my, my stomach turned having to uh, get ready and study, because we've spent so much time in David's life that you, you, you come to admire and love this character, feel as though you, you know him well. And we've seen the victories and the faithfulness, and yet here we have this this great fall. It's a tragic story. But what I want us to know is this, is that it is still God's story. Just as we look at David and Goliath, and we look at his faithfulness in the wilderness, we look at him uh, dealing with foreign relations and defeating all of Israel's enemies, and we and we say, ah, these are this is certainly God's story. Remember that even here in this one as well. It is still God's story because God doesn't hide the messy parts. It's one of the things I love about Scripture. We read about the heroes of Scripture, we, the, the, the patriarchs of the faith. We read, about, uh, we read about Noah, who through his work on the ark and bringing his family in, and two of every kind saved life on earth from the judgment of the flood. And then we read about his, um, his, his drunkenness and, and shame which followed after that. We read about Abraham, right, the patriarch of the faith, and all of his failures and his faithlessness and his his doubting and questioning. We read about Moses, who uh, was the leader of God's redemption for his people from Egypt, and how he failed as well. He had times of faithlessness as well. We read about um about many others in Scripture, even going to Jesus' disciples. And we see these great moments, but we also get to see a pretty clear picture of their baggage and their worst times. God does not hide the messy parts. The victories and the defeats, the, the moments of greatness and failure, they are all a part of his redemptive story. 
And so as we go into this passage, like I said, it's already well known. You guys have probably already heard multiple sermons over this passage in the span of your lifetime. And you, you, maybe you, you're coming in with certain expectations of what I'm going to say or what I should say or maybe how you felt the last time you heard this passage preached. So what I want to start on is this, that it is still God's story. And because it is still his story and because he does not hide the messy parts, we need to remember this, that he always has redemptive purposes. Okay? We're going to ask three questions as we look at this story. And really, we're just looking at half the story today. The second half of this story comes in the chapter that we'll look at next week with um, whenever Nathan the prophet comes in to confront David. So we're just looking at David's actions today, and we're going to ask, why did David fall? How did David fall? And then what will happen since David fell? So why did David fall? How did he fall? What will happen since he fell? Three simple questions. I want to try to keep this story and what we learn from it as simple as possible to and clear as possible to get down to the heart of it, what we need to take away. So why did David fall? Uh, in the military and whatever branches uh, you, you could maybe serve in and whatever uh, job you have, they often practice something called the after-action review. So whether that be some special operations soldiers go out in operation to achieve some end, they come back from the mission and they do an after-action review. And, and, and they do this in all the different departments of the military, but what they do is they go out on this mission with an agenda, they have an objective to accomplish, they come back and they, they do their after-action review, which is simply looking back at what they had done, their plan going into it, how the plan was executed, what went well, what didn't go well, just getting a real clear sense on what happened. Why did it happen that way? Why did it go well? Why did it go bad? What can we learn from it? And that's sort of the approach that I want us to take to this story in Second Samuel chapter 11, an after-action review. What happened here? Why did it happen this way? What can we take away from this? That's, that's why, that, that's the heart behind these questions that we're asking. And so that, like I said, we can get down to really what we need to take away from this story. And so what happened and why? What can we learn? Well, as we get started, I think the best place for us to start is just asking the question of why did David fall? Especially because we are just coming off of really what is the, the pinnacle of David's rule. After all the years that we saw him waiting to become king uh, after his initial anointing by Samuel, whenever he was very young and his, uh, his, his time of, one, not wandering, but hiding in the wilderness, running from Saul, and his struggles to come to the throne. Then once he came to the throne to consolidate his kingdom, uh, defeat the enemies of Israel, you know, we see all these just, he's just stacking wins, right? Victory upon victory. And then this huge fall. So why did that happen? Whenever you read this story, and if you, if you were to go back and reread it later, then I think you might, um, you might notice this theme pretty well. It's, it's a clear theme, which is that David is in control. David remains in control, in tight-fisted control, throughout this entire story. The narrator says very little about so many things that we would like to know about, and focuses everything, like the spotlight shines bright on David, right? Like we don't know what was Joab's reaction to David sending a letter telling him to kill Uriah with Uriah, with Uriah's hand delivering the letter. What, how did Joab think about that? What, what was his reaction? We don't know. We just know that it was carried out. And then the, the report that it happened was then sent back to David. What did Bathsheba think? What did she feel throughout all this? 
from her, we only have three words in English. In Hebrew, I believe it's just two words from, from Bathsheba. It tells us nothing about her intentions behind the story, you know, and, and how she felt. And, uh, even her mourning. It doesn't tell us what was her mourning like. Was she really mourning? Or was she, did she have an eye for the king, right? It just says when the period of mourning was over. It's, it's very formal sounding almost. It shines a spotlight on David's actions. And I think that whenever we look at that spotlight then, which is what the narrator is wanting to, us to focus on, then this theme bubbles up to the surface. David remains in control throughout the whole time. He's on the roof of his palace, and he sees Bathsheba. He wants her. He gets her. She gets pregnant. It puts them in danger of, being, uh, of his sin being caught and uncovered. So he wants the situation taken care of. His, what he wants is thwarted a little bit because of Uriah's insistence that he's not going to go home. Even then, we'd like to know more. Why won't he go home? Was it really because he just wanted to stay faithful to the truth, or did he sense that something was up? Right? He won't go home, but David is still going to remain in control and get what he wants. And so he has Uriah killed. He eventually brings Bathsheba into his palace to be one of his wives. David remains in control throughout this whole story. In a sense, uh, all of the points of the story move along by David's hands. He makes sure that each, uh, each moment and point goes in the direction that he wants, how he wants it to go, to end up with the ending that he wants. He remains in control. He is, he is the boss. Now contrast this with David previously in his life. Contrast this whenever David was in the wilderness and he had uh, not one but two different opportunities to take Saul's life or at least to capture Saul and then end the conflict that he had been having to go through. But he restrains himself from doing so knowing that it is not God's will. And so he is not going to do what he wants, but follow what God desires. We see David in other stories before he goes to war questioning, you know, am I supposed to go to battle with this town or against this king? And he stops and he asks the Lord what he is supposed to do. In David's life, almost without fail, uh, up before this, he always acknowledges that God is in control. At every point of decision, he acknowledges that it is the Lord's will that reigns. And that even whenever he becomes king, he acknowledges that he is ruling under the authority of God. And so he acknowledges God's rule. But this time, he's acting like a thug. He's acting like he's the boss, like he is the ultimate king, like he has ultimate authority. He does the kind of thing that we expect from wicked regimes, kings who are authoritarian, not acknowledging the authority and uh, power of God over them, but doing whatever they desire. It's not what we expect in God's kingdom from God's king. David, up until this point, had understood that he had the title of king over Israel, but he was not the king with a capital K. He was the king with a lower K. He understood that he sat on the throne, but he was the steward of the throne. It reminds me of the story in The Lord of the Rings. In The Return of the King, we have this, the, the fa- I can't remember his name, but the father of Boromir and Faramir, who was the steward of Gondor, right? It was a kingdom waiting for a, the return of their king, who would sit on their throne. In the meantime, before they had their, their true king, they had the steward of Gondor, who stewarded the throne. 
but he began to act like he was in control, like he was the boss, like he was the king, right? And so he quits acting like the steward of the throne and acting as though it is his own throne. David does the same thing here. Saul, David, and every king that came after him was to be a steward of the throne of God. But what does David do in this story? He says, here, he, he, he starts acting as though it is his. He's not the steward of God's throne, but it is his throne. He is not the king under God's rule over God's kingdom. He is the king over his own kingdom. What happened with David? You know, several years ago, I read a, I read a book that, it, it was not a Christian book, but they talked about this story here and gave an interpretation of it that I thought was helpful. They said, you know, in theory, all the women of the realm were the kings, but they belonged to the archetype of the king, what we would say God. So all the people belonged to God, not to the mortal king. David unconsciously identified himself with the king energy and not only took Bathsheba, but also had her husband Uriah killed. Once again, forgot that he was not a king under God's authority, God being the ultimate king and the kingdom being his and all the people being his, but instead saw himself as taking that place. So when we have to ask the question, why did David fall? Here's the answer. Because David forgot that he was a ruler under God in God's kingdom. He forgot that he was a ruler under God in God's kingdom. And instead, he started to identify himself with the sovereign over the kingdom. Claim the throne for himself in the kingdom and all the people for himself. Acting as though the lives, uh, acting as, as, as though Bathsheba belonged to himself and the wife of her husband was his to spare or to take. You know, once again, compare this story with the story of David's greatest victory. Whenever David went out to fight against the champion of the Philistines, he goes before Goliath, who had been taunting them and, and, and insulting them and insulting God. And he's heavily armored, and, he, and he's, he carries a giant spear and a great sword, and he has a massive helmet on his head. And David came out there just as a shepherd boy. He went out there with his sling and five stones. You remember the story? And he goes before Goliath, and this is what he said to him. He says, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. So once again, contrast David's greatest victory, his highest moment with his lowest. In his lowest, he sees himself as the sovereign, but in his highest, he goes into battle and he comes out victorious because of this. He said, because I come in the name of the Lord of armies. I come in the name of God. In that moment, David did not see himself as the hero and savior of Israel. He saw himself as the servant of the hero of Israel. As representative of who would save the people. That's what he meant. I come in the name of the Lord of armies. He saw himself as a representative, and he also meant this when he says, I come in the name of the Lord of armies. I come in the power and the authority of him. So he doesn't come to make something of his own name. He doesn't go before Goliath to defeat him with ego, saying, 
I face worse than you. And so, you know, I'm going to defeat you because I'm so great. He comes in the name, but also what he means is the power and the authority of the Lord, of Yahweh. Contrasted with here, where he is in control. He is not operating in the name of the Lord, operating as a king, a steward under the king with a capital K, but as though it is all his. What it means for us is this, that we must remember that we are servants of God and we act under his authority. In your life, whenever you take away, you do your after-action review of 2 Samuel 11 and this tragic story, how do we make sense of it for our own lives? Remember that you are a servant of God who acts under God's authority. So whatever, in every place of life you are, in, what, in whatever roles God has given you, in whatever jobs, offices, and names the Lord has given you, remember that you are a steward of those titles, offices, and jobs. That they are not ultimately yours, but, they, but you are operating under the authority of God. Every time that we, we see people suffering in oppression or suffering from harshness in a place, it is typically because there is a person in that place who is trying to make it their own kingdom. When we see a church that starts to suffer underneath the, the, the oppressiveness of a pastor with a giant ego who sees the church as his, as being about his name and the people being there not to serve the Lord but to serve his ends, is because there's a pastor there who has forgotten that he is not the, shepherd, the great shepherd, but that he is an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. Whenever you have a household where there's a, there's a husband or whether there be two parents who are oppressive towards one another, or they be oppressive towards their children, and there, there is suffering rather than, than flourishing, there is, um, there is despair rather than joy. It is because you have two parents who forgot that they are not the ultimate father of that household, but that they serve as stewards under the father. Husbands, whenever you are harsh to your wives because they do not act as you, as you desire them to, is because you have forgotten that Christ is the ultimate husband, and you are to be a steward towards your wife. And wives, the same towards your husbands. Remember that we are servants of God. In whatever place that he has put in us, and with whatever authority he has given us, it is to steward in the name of the Lord, under his authority for the sake of his glory. This is what Jesus did. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said this to the crowds who were listening to him. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. These are the words that characterized all of Jesus' actions. He came not to establish his own kingdom, but the Father's kingdom. He came not to do his own will, but the Father's will. And he consistently laid down what he desired for what the Father desired, because what the Father desired is what he wanted to do, as he says here. And so if we're going to follow Christ, then we must have the same mindset among ourselves and the same desires to not do our own will, but the will of him who sends us into the places and kingdoms that we go into. So remember who you are and who you serve under. Now, how did David fall? In the previous two chapters, we looked at how, if, if you're here, you remember, you can go back in the sermons and listen, or just go back in a couple of chapters and read. 
There's a theme the last pre, in the previous two chapters to this one, which is David showing kindness. The kindness being there in the, the Hebrew hesed. We talked about David as the hesed doing king, the, the kindness doing king, as being a king whose rule was characterized by covenantal love. We saw him showing this kind of kindness and covenantal love to Israel through showing kindness to Mephibosheth and the house of Saul, but then also to the nations as he tried to show kindness to, uh, to the Ammonites. But then they rebuffed his kindness, went to war with him, and we saw at the beginning of this chapter they're actually still at war with the Ammonites. But he is the kindness-doing king. However, in this chapter, there's a stark contrast to the previous two. He is not the Hesed-doing king in this chapter. He has no kindness to show in this chapter. He is harsh, and he is ruthless. Why? Why is that? Well, because, remember, David has quit seeing himself as the steward of the throne and instead has identified himself and his ego with the sovereignty over the kingdom. Now, here's what that does. Whenever he does that, taking the throne and the kingdom for himself, it means that he places his desires at the center of the kingdom. You remember what Jesus said? Not that my will be done, not that my my desires be done, but that yours be done, as he prayed in the garden. And as he said the same thing before the the crowds in John chapter 6. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. So if it's his kingdom, whose desire will be at the center of it? Thy will be done. Whoever the king of the kingdom is, his desires will set the agenda of the kingdom. So whenever David takes it for himself, whose desires are put front and center? David's. His desires are at the center of the kingdom, and it doesn't matter what that costs for everyone else. So our second point, how did he fall? David placed his desires at the center of his kingdom. He placed his desires at the center of his kingdom. I'm trying to make this story as trying to boil it down to its most basic of elements to make it as simple as possible. Because like I said, it being a famous story and us hearing so many different sermons on it, we come in with expectations and baggage. I think maybe on the one hand, a lot of us might come in with expectations of of looking at the dramatic elements of this story and, and think to ourselves, surely that's nothing that I could ever fall into, right? What David does here, I could never fall that low. On the other hand, someone was coming here with a, a very, very sensitive conscience. We come in ready to be condemned. We come in ready to be beaten down with the failure of David and make it our failure as well. I'm trying to speak to both of those issues with the, by boiling it down to his most basic elements and helping us to see that at the core, what happened here, what David did is not all that distant from what we do all the time. So for those of us who think, that can never be me, now think again, you need to be more realistic. Those of you who are thinking, I'm just going to be beaten over the head with, with the failure of David. Not so fast, right? Let us, let us look at the story and consider how it's not just the, the big things that you're carrying guilt around that that God is wanting to 
uh, uh, crush you with, with this, with this story. He wants you to look at everything. Because when we look at it through this perspective, that all David is doing is putting his desires at the center of his kingdom, then his actions don't look all that distant from our own. To the greater degree that we start to build our own kingdoms, that we forget that we're the steward of what God has given us, and that we are living and operating in his kingdom, and we start to make it about ourselves, then we're naturally going to start to do the same thing. We will attempt to orient all things in our kingdoms to our desires. This is often where conflict comes from in our households. For those of you who, who, are, who are married and, or who have uh, a family living in a household, so often this is where our conflicts come from. Is because one person in the home, or usually multiple people in the home, have tried to make themselves the center of that home. They have tried to take that home and change it from being a, a little kingdom of God to a little kingdom of Aaron, right? Or to a little kingdom of so-and-so, whoever it is. And whenever the king or queen rules over that kingdom, they try to make all other uh, subjects in their kingdom operate according to their desires. So husbands or wives, it goes for any of us. So often we get frustrated with our spouses. Why? Not because of really any true sin in them. Or we have conflict in our marriage, not because we have even sinned against one another, but because we are sinning by trying to make them conform to what we want our little kingdom to be and to look like and to do. Because every kingdom will have a center, will have a sovereign. Your household will either operate with God as the sovereign, as the center over it, where everyone is uh, living and operating in sub, uh, as subjects to him, or someone will try to take that throne. So we can see this in terms of our households, but we can see it in many other ways as well whenever we sin. Whenever we, whenever we accept temptation and we, and we play with sin, doing so, knowing that it's not God's will, but it's what I'm desiring. It's what I'm wanting, and so I'm going to place my desires first. Build my kingdom. Do not assume that you are immune to what David did. Do not assume that you are immune to what David did. Here in this story, we see the Lord's anointed king. Remember whenever Samuel went to the house of Jesse, and he went through all of David's brothers, thinking, surely this is the one, surely this is the one, and God kept saying, no, 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 that's not the one. God chose David. Here we see the Lord's anointed chosen king, who was the last choice among the world. And we see the one who has been described as a man after God's own heart allow himself to wander into sin. Christians ought not look at this text and believe that any of us are farther from falling into sin than David was. We ought not think that because we are New Testament believers living under the new covenant that we are any more immune to or, or, or safer from falling into the kind of sin that we see in this story. Even if it not be as dramatic, we can do the same thing when we start to see ourselves as the sovereign and place our desires at the center of our kingdoms. Those who are in the most danger are those who say, oh, I could never. It's not realistic. It's not faithful to true Christian doctrine. True Christian doctrine says, oh, but you could. 
True Christian doctrine says, you say, oh, I can never. True Christianity says, oh, but for the grace of God, you are not. It reminds me of the, the song that we often sing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And know oh, how easy it is for us to take small steps, to indulge little temptations, one by one by one, and get used to fulfilling our desires, placing ourselves at the center, and not submitting to God's authority. So do not assume that you're immune to David did. What will happen since David fell? The story is interesting for what it says, but also for what it doesn't say. Like I talked about earlier, there's all kinds of questions that we'd like to ask and, and, and find out. Insights that we'd like to know that the narrator just isn't interested in telling us. But there's something else that's left out that's quite interesting. The narrator leaves out so much, including God. We read this whole long chapter. Right? You, got, you guys sat through Jacob messing up all those names. You read this whole long chapter, and you think, where's God? If only God would have stepped in. Right? Whenever David was on the roof, if only God would have stepped in. Whenever he brought Bathsheba, if only God would have stepped in. Where was he? Or he sent Uriah to die. Where was he? He's nowhere to be found in this whole chapter until the very end. There's one comment left before we turn to the next page in the story, and it's this. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Here's the last point. The silence of God does not indicate the absence of God. The silence of God does not indicate the absence of God. We are we would do well to be reminded that in Psalm eleven chapter uh, Psalm uh, chapter eleven verse four it says the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord, His throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. His gaze examines everyone. It's important that we recognize this because we often question where God is at whenever we experience the brokenness of the world. And I mean that in a few different senses. Whenever we experience the brokenness of the world in our suffering, or whenever we witness the suffering of others, we see death, we see calamity, we see tragedy strike, and we, or we see malevolence poured out upon people. And we often ask, uh, where is God? We ask just like the mourners at Lazarus' tomb whenever Jesus showed up, and they said, if only you would have been here. We see similar times whenever we, we experience the brokenness of the world and we say, if only God would have been there. Or whenever we experience the brokenness of our own sin. And we're crushed, we're devastated, our hearts are broken, our spirits are grieved because we know that we have fallen short again. We know that we have broken our Father's heart again. We remember, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. And we say to ourselves, if only you were there. Why did you stop me? Where were you? We look at this story and we feel that, and we look at our lives, and we look at our world, and we feel that. When we suffer and when we sin, where is he? There's this great Japanese novel 
that I read a while back that had this scene that has always stuck with me. It was a, no, a novel called Silence by Shisaka Endo. And it was about these Jesuit missionaries who go into Japan to, uh, to try to spread the word of God and, and make, and build up churches during the time whenever Japan was closing itself off from any, uh, foreign influence and especially any outside religion, the foremost being Christianity. So they go and they experience great persecution. They start to build a little underground church, even though the state is looking for them. But some of the, uh, faithful, wonderful members of their church are captured. And they are, they're questioned, asked about, for information about the underground church and uh, about the leaders and where they are. And they refuse to give up anything. They remain faithful to the uttermost. And so they are tied to posts on the beach so that as the tide comes in, they would slowly be drowned. And so the two priests who had gone together sit there on a, on a cliff in the mountain watching as the families are nearby crying and, and trying to speak to them for the few last moments they have as the two faithful believers are slowly being overcome by the waves and then they're overtaken and it's quiet. And the main character, Rodriguez, says this, what do I want to say? I myself do not quite understand. Only that today, when for the glory of God, Mokichi and Ichizo moaned, suffered, and died. I cannot bear the monotonous sound of the dark sea gnawing at the shore. Behind the depressing silence of the sea, the silence of God. The feeling that while men raise their voices in anguish, God remains with folded arms, silent. Whenever Uriah was struck down, there God remains. But though he is silent, he is not absent. And as I said at the beginning, we cannot forget that this is still God's story. This is still God's story. He is the author of it. He is in control. And so when we come to the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see David's sin and the catastrophe that it has caused. And it grieves even our own hearts for this man who we've come to admire. And we question, where does this leave us? Where does this leave us with David? Where does, it, where does this leave us with, with myself and whenever I fall? And whenever I, I go through those times of questioning, Lord, why? Where, where are you? Why didn't you stop me? Why didn't you stop this? Why didn't you intervene? We cannot forget that even in all those moments, God is still the author of this story. And remember this, that surely God and the narrator knew of David's actions in 2 Samuel chapter 11, whenever they wrote back in 1 Samuel that he was a man after God's own heart. God knew about this story, whenever he called David a man after his own heart. And David's actions in 2 Samuel chapter 11 did not have to make the narrator retroactively go back and change that and say, ah, no, actually, he's not so much. Because God is still the author of the story. And even in David's actions, which are evil and God considered to be evil, he still has redemption waiting for him. How? Whenever, whenever God's chosen king fell in 2 Samuel 11, he was able to still have, though he considered his actions evil, he was still able to have forgiveness and grace and redemption waiting for him because his chosen king 
who would come centuries later, a descendant of David. Though his actions were nothing but righteous in the eyes of God, he would be struck down. He would be condemned. He would die the death that David should have received right there at the end of 2 Samuel 11. And so that whenever you, little kings and queens in God's kingdom, whenever you who have been chosen by God and loved by him, who have been anointed with his spirit, whenever you fall, whenever you experience those failures which are great and dramatic or whether they be smaller and not so dramatic, and so that where you question, God, where were you? You can know this. His silence does not indicate his absence. He is still there, and he is ready to bring you into his arms of forgiveness and of love and of grace because his chosen king died for you, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus took on God's condemnation for us, because he was taken over by the waves, of God's wrath and swallowed them up and laid them in his grave as we sang this morning. He has grace waiting for you. And so wherever you come to those times where you think that you have messed it all up, that surely there can be no path forward from this, that you maybe you've had a David and Bathsheba moment where you've thought, my goodness, I never thought I could, but now I have. God is still in control of your story. He still has a redemptive story to write for you. You are not beyond his grace because Christ died for that sin too. And whenever God in his grace chose you and set his love upon you and called you and justified you and adopted you and anointed you with his spirit, he paid for your sins all once forevermore. He did did away with them in the blood of Jesus Christ, all of them, in that moment. And there's nothing that you can do now that would retroactively go back and change the intentions behind God's loving heart for you. What does this mean? Whenever we experience the silence, it means know that he's still there and call on God's mercy when you begin to foolishly build your own kingdom. You don't have to wait until a David and Bathsheba moment. You don't have to wait until the lowest. But whenever you find yourself starting to build your own kingdom and placing your desires and your will at the center rather than saying, God's kingdom come, God's will be done, then call out to God's mercy. Know that you have not exhausted the riches of his grace for you. Christ died to pay for that sin. And because he has paid for that sin and he has laid down your death in his own grave and then despised it by rising from the grave, that God is now glad and he is just to forgive you of that sin and of all your sin. What does God think of me whenever I'm at my lowest? It's a question I often ask. If you're in Christ, we know because of looking at this story. And what is going to come in this story, that even then, at your lowest, he is ready to forgive, and he is ready to redeem. The author of your story is not done with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't leave out the messy parts. 
that we can read in your in your word about the highs and the lows of all the great heroes and saints and patriarchs who have gone before us. We can identify with them in their weakness and their faithlessness and their forgetfulness. We can place ourselves in their shoes, understand that we are not all that unlike them. But then we get the goodness that comes with the messy stories when we witness that at their lowest and at their worst, at their most shocking, you are not shocked. Your patience is not exhausted. Your grace is not run out. And that you still have redemptive purposes for them. You still have kingdom work for them to do. And Lord, what, what gracious healing that brings to our hearts, which are so often heavy to those with sensitive consciences who would beat themselves up over every little thing and who who come in to a story like this one just ready to, to be crushed. What healing grace for them to know that you're still in control of their story and that you are not surprised and that your grace and your love and your justification of them has not been turned over that it is for these moments that they were saved. Lord, so I ask that you would not just convict us because we need that conviction and we need to see that we are not immune from or too far from the kind of sin that we read about here. But that you would draw us into your warm embrace. Let us remember that that your word says that your your eyes gaze upon all, but that your eyes specifically watch the righteous. You watch us. You keep your eyes on us. And you keep them on us when we do evil in your eyes, when we do good, because you love us. And so, Father, we, we call upon that love, that grace and that mercy that we all need this morning call upon it. We claim it. We receive it in the name of our King who laid down his life, Jesus Christ.